All right, welcome back to Radio Wasteland. That welcome back is both to you, the audience, and to our guest tonight, Jonathan Weiss, uh, Vice. Um, of Jonathan Vice Tours. We're talking, you know, we had uh, Jonathan on not too long ago. We were talking about New Orleans, and uh, I know I don't say, but okay, so this is a constant thing that goes on in TV. Let me back up. Tonight, we're talking about women in New Orleans. But I got to say, this is a constant thing that goes on. How does somebody from New Orleans pronounce it? And how does somebody who's not from New Orleans, how are they supposed to pronounce it? There's different pronunciations depending on what part of the city you're from. I but see. generally, it's going to be New Orleans, okay. N apostrophe O-R-L-I-N-S, uh-huh. or New Orleans, which is closest to the original French, mm-hmm. or New Orleans. I was like N E W with a little apostrophe O R L L I N S. Those are the three major pronunciations of the city's name. Huh. Uh, if you say Nowlands, <laughs> we want to smack you immediately. New Orleans? Nowlands. <laughs> Come on, you out of Nowlands. That makes us crazy. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we, we have all kinds of verbal tricks and cues to tell people, tell if people are actually from New Orleans or not. Uh, from the way we pronounce our streets to the words we use to describe common events. There's tons and tons of verbal little tricks all throughout our specific version of Southern, uh, Southern American English. Well, so it's me, kind of fun. <laughs> it makes me think a lot of uh, England, how they can tell like which, which parts of, I mean, uh, London, which parts of London you're from based off of your accent. Oh, yeah. Apparently that's a by, really- By the way you pronounce words, yeah. Yeah. By the, by the turns of phrase you use. It's really kind of cool because you're right, London's homogenized a lot a lot um since the like, 80s but um new orleans still has its very specific little things i'm kind of pleased by that right yeah well i mean it's cool because it holds on to the history and I you know, speaking of the history and the little things you know when i saw this topic i couldn't help but to think the first thing that popped into my head was in a history where women have been well, without a doubt, the most marginalized group without throughout all of history <clears throat> would be women. Um, New Orleans seems to have this, this underbelly, this underground, and, and I can't help but to think that that was like a festering, maybe festering is not the right word, but <laughs> an area for, for women to do things that maybe they weren't able to do in other parts of the world because of this this sort of secretive underground. I wouldn't necessarily say it's secretive as much as it's just um, it's just a completely different cultural point of view than the rest of the United States mm-hmm. or the rest of what became the United States. And it had very much to do with, um, I think it had a lot to do with the fact that we were such a, a raw frontier for so long. Um, mm-hmm. There were not enough women here by any means. When we got founded, there were just not any women. So literally, um, you know, there were schemes to, to trick, entice, and import women from France to the Savage New World, mm. including these amazingly detailed fake posters about what they could expect when they arrived in this beautiful paradise called La Nouvelle Lyon. Oh, no. oh my God, it was fantastic. Uh, I've seen a reproduction of one of the posters, and it generally shows you a complete fantasy. Because in the 1730s, New Orleans, you know, we're, we're mostly below, below sea level in southern Louisiana. Uh, New Orleans didn't have any paving in the streets till 1888. Uh, so essentially, the streets were open sewers. 
the houses were made from busted up boats and barges. So the planks didn't fit right. You know, you chinked them with mud and moss. Uh, the, the floors were generally made of dirt uh, and the roofs were made of wood, uh, wood shingles. But when it rains heavily, like it does in Southern Louisiana, the wood shingles would essentially just sift the water evenly over the entire floor of your house, leaving a mud pit surrounded by a wooden shack. It was an absolute festering pit. And the men of the time would look a lot like the extras from the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Right. So <laughs> the poster is just an absolute fantasy creation that shows beautiful cobblestone streets and stately two-story townhomes, as far as you can see. And the foreground, two gentlemen. Now, now this would be the late Three Musketeer time. Mm -hmm. So these men would be fancy with the long curling wigs and the high right. buckle shoes, frock I'll coats. These men have that. their arms linked and they're strolling the boulevard of a fictitious city looking at the viewer with the most French face you could ever imagine. And in the best of all, in the background, the snow-capped mountains of southern Louisiana rose up to kiss the sky. Oh, God. <laughs> yes. Snow-capped mountains, southern Louisiana. There was not an innocent word in that whole sentence. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, I guess that is, is the beginning of, uh, of the rebelliousness of women when they showed up. I can imagine that they showed up and they were all, oh, hell no. Yeah, our first women actually were uh, from the prisons of France. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. So they, they emptied the right prisons out. out. They emptied the prisons of pickpockets, uh, the homeless, mentally ill. They emptied the prisons, of course, of prostitutes, and they all sent them here to be wives. A city huh. of prostitutes being poured into a city of savages to be good wives. Can you imagine how well that went? Uh, yes. Yes, I can. It, it, uh, <laughs> it sounds like a lot of... Uh, it sounds like post-apocalyptic movies that I would like, you know? It sounds like some sort of, like, Mad Max uh, premise, you know? I don't think that would be too bad of comparison, to be very honest with you. <laughs> All right, so, uh, you know, when we had you on the first time, we talked a bit about Marie Laveau. Um, and uh, let's let's skim over her real quick for anybody who who hasn't seen her, but we'll talk about some of the other ones as well. But uh, sure, sure. Marie Laveau, I think, is probably the most famous name that's coming out of there when we sort of think of scary New Orleans, yeah, New Orleans and women. Um, mm -hmm. Is she worthy of of this sort of scary title that comes with her? I think so. I mean, she she would have wielded an immense amount of power for a woman in the 19th century, mid-19th century, let alone a black woman in the mid-19th century. Mm -hmm. um, she, she was an extremely astute businesswoman. She was uh, a hairdresser by trade. And she also was essentially, you know, recognized voodoo priestess. Uh, in New Orleans, the voodoo priestesses were all referred to as queens, right? Mm -hmm. The thing is, though, imagine the high society ladies of New Orleans who have their hairdresser over for their little, you know, get-togethers. It's going to be my Lebo, Marie Laveau, and they find out that she's a queen of voodoo. Oh, Lord, this is so exciting. She's a queen. She's royalty. Mm. So if she really knew how to work the expectations of the white people around her, the high society around her. Of course, she was raised in this milieu, so she understood people intimately. Uh, and, and I think that she was not only a very clever, very strong marketer of her own brand. I mean, literally, she was her own brand. But she's also a very well-respected priestess of voodoo. Uh, and she was feared, no doubt at all. Uh, the white population feared her, the black population feared her because they did not want to risk her displeasure. Uh, so she was extremely powerful and extremely influential in a time where women and black women were essentially non-entities or I guess considered not quite citizens or not quite even human. 
So she was, I think, a very interesting and powerful character. But we do actually have something of a tradition of very strong free black women in awards. That's that's not a joke at all. I mean, um, you know, that's stories like John Bunyan and and Pecos Bill. You know, yeah. these these legendary kind of tall tale characters of early America. Uh, Johnny Appleseed. There's one here named Annie Christmas. Annie Christmas was a free black woman who was almost seven feet tall and could carry a barrel of flour under each arm and one on her head. She could load a flatboat all by herself in a single day. It said that she was a uh, she was so strong. She she was so tough and strong. She dressed like a man, but she wore a pearl necklace around her neck. But each pearl represented some man that she'd beaten down. Huh. So yeah, and this is this is a this is this is a pre Civil War character up and down the Mississippi River, talked about among slaves and free blacks alike as being you know essentially a patroness, a giantess in her own time, um, a woman who did not need a man, but a woman who's as strong as a man, but a woman who bore I think they said. 12 sons, each one bigger and stronger than the last one. So, I mean, it's just, it's such a shame that characters like that are kind of faded away in our consciousness. Right. But I mean, that's a wonderful legendary character. That's a free black woman who runs her own business. She was a keelboat captain uh, on the Mississippi river. And I think that's just one of the coolest stories that nobody really knows about. So we right. do have a tradition of strong free black women. Uh, Mother Anglia de Lille was another free black woman um, descended from the Cleo class. Um, that means she'd be descended of the French and Spanish original settlers of the area. Mm -hmm. But she was also, uh, I think, one eighth African. So she'd been certainly noted as a black woman in birth records, right. even though she was free. But she founded the first uh, order of nuns, um, the first black American woman to found an order of nuns in the 19th mm -hmm. century. And she was very influential in, in education um, she ministered to the poor, she taught slaves and free blacks how to read from children to adults, taught them literacy and numbers. Um, she was very much a rebel for her time because I haven't been able to get a whole lot of information about it, but her class, she would be considered to be born to a class of women called blessé. Blessé comes to the French word, which literally means to be in a place. So blessés would literally be kept women, women of a place. Oh. And these were these were the free black mistresses of the white clails in the Orleans. So that is that was like a class, like a geisha class. Your daughter is raised up by a place to be a place to learn how to dress, how to do her makeup discreetly, how to uh, run a household, how to converse, how to be polite society, because she's destined to become a companion of a wealthy French or Spanish gentleman. And she was very much rebellious in that that class in time. She demanded on joining holy orders, and she finally did it at the age of twenty one. Wild. So, so there you're, you're saying, you know, I'm, I'm botching words that you were saying that we hear out here. Are, are you saying what I would know of as Creole when you're saying that she's Creole? Creole uh, has different meanings. Uh, traditionally, it would mean anything that's from Europe, like France or Spain, that's born in the new world. So you'd have Creole people would be people who are of the French and Spanish stock that were born in the new world. That's what Clayol originally meant. Now it's evolved essentially to mean people who are distinctly of Native American, uh, African, and European blood lineage mixed. I see. Uh, so that's what I know of it as, but I, right. I see what you're saying. Right. That, that's what it means now. But traditionally, originally it meant people who were descended from the original settlers. You know, it's really interesting that... Uh, <clears throat> that we have such a 
a specific pocket of culture uh, here. You know, the United States is so big and we kind of think of ourselves as one big country, although here recently we seem to be thinking otherwise as two different countries. But, you know, I think about it with a comparison to Europe and, uh, you know, like I grew up in Southern California, then I moved to Northern California and the distance to to do that is like traveling through three countries in Europe, three very drastic mm-hmm. um, different cultures, you know, and um, and I don't think the United States gets its, we seem to be in between is a state a country with its own culture and are we the United States? Are we this sort of globalized view of, hey, we're all this way? You know, it's very interesting that New Orleans seems to have very well held on to its pocket of culture uh, in a world that's trying to take that away. Well, I mean, you know, the joke that's not a joke is that we've been at war with America for more than 200 years. Because we didn't want to be Americans. The the French and Spanish were absolutely appalled to become Americans. Uh, They hated Americans so much, they were not even allowed in our homes. And we wouldn't sell them a single inch of ground in the city of New Orleans, which essentially was the French Quarter. So they actually had to buy a plantation across what is now Canal Street and build their own settlement. So generally, Canal Street was a dividing line between the, the Creoles, the Europeans, and the Americans. Mm. And the little strip of ground that goes between two lanes of a street that you call the median, in New Orleans is to this day called the neutral ground. Because oh, really? that's where the French and the American businessmen would meet to conduct business. They had to do business with each other, but they didn't like each other. So they just met in the neutral ground. And to this day, the median in the rest of the United States is called a neutral ground in New Orleans, all over the city. Is there, is there any of that left? Oh, yeah. Uptowners and downtowners really honestly don't mix and don't get along very well. Huh. <laughs> they don't trust each other very much. Interesting. Huh. Yeah, that it's is wild. Too, because when downtowners go uptown, they can always spot somebody from downtown. It's just, I guess we're a little more uh, overt, a little less... American, a little more flamboyant, a little louder, right. a little more cheerful. I think we probably tip better too. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. But yeah, it's, it's still very much a divided city. Even we're more attractive. All these years later. Well, hit that mall, obviously. I didn't want to go. Thank you. <laughs> Did you have a question about anything about the women? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, on your tour, you know, how many, how many women do, do people hear about on your tour it really kind of depends there's just generally it's a blessing there's so many amazing and interesting women in new orleans history of 300 years Mm -hmm. and so many we don't know about which drives me crazy you know okay every once in a while i will find one and i'm like oh my god this woman is the coolest woman in the history world but um it just kind of depends i mean you know i think i mentioned before my tours generally have to do with time and route so i will put as many stories as i can to be honest with you, that's why I encourage people to ask me questions because the more questions you ask like this, you know, I can just kind of freestyle it, if you will. Exactly. Right. And I can answer specific questions or give people better a better contextual grip on a culture, time, place, or person. So um, it, it's, you know, as many as I could talk about, I, I could easily put a dozen women into a, into a tour. Uh, I could put many more than that. It kind of depends just like I said on, on time. And also I think what my group is interested in um, right. We've got everything from from generally murderous prostitutes in our city to fantastic folklore characters like Annie Christmas to generally powerful women, temporarily powerful women like uh, Marie Laveau 
two absolute savage psychopaths like Delphine Lavarie, two sainted mothers like Mother Anna Deli. So, I mean, it's just, it's everything, man. It's a gamut. And this, keep in mind, this would all be in the one mile by one half mile. Right. Yeah. It's crazy, but it's absolutely just one of the most amazing things to, to realize how many women. Oh, and I'm, I didn't even mention the Baroness Portalba. If you go to New Orleans, if you look at pictures of New Orleans, you're almost always going to see the same picture. And it's the picture of Jackson Square with the cathedral and Andrew Jackson waving his hat in the air as he, you know, salutes his troops for victory over the British at the Battle of New Orleans. That square was actually designed and paid for by a woman. Oh. How? In the 1850s. Yeah, how? You know, how, how is she able to do that at the time? She was extremely rich and extremely powerful and from a very old, literally Spanish-French nobility line. So that carried a ton of weight in the wars, right? Because she was, she's Clayol as Clayol can be, right? Uh, her name was Bernice Mecaila Amoresti Putalba. And if you look at the beautiful red brick buildings on either side of Jackson Square, and you look at the Spanish lace, you know, the little ironwork on the, the mm -hmm. galleries, you're going to see the letters A and P intertwined in all those galleries because Amoresti y Putalba, her last, uh, last name's initials, and she designed them. She paid to have them built. She worked with the architects. She bought up all the one-story shanty, crappy shacks that would have been around Jackson Square originally, knocked them all down, and had those gorgeous buildings built around 1851. And you know, she was uh, she was such an interesting and powerful woman. There was actually an opera written about her, which debuted in New Orleans about 10 years ago, oh, called really? called Puntala. No, called, called sorry, called Makayla. Uh, and yeah, it's she's she's just an absolute mind blower. Even the, even Andrew Jackson, his, his statue, she's the one who essentially uh, designed and kind of put the most influence into the design of the statue. You'll see Andrew Jackson with his hat off, right? Now, this may not be true. It's, me, it's a traditional New Orleans apocryphal story, but it's said that when Andrew Jackson was here to defend the city against the British in 1815, young Baroness Makayla is riding along in her carriage. And apparently General Jackson was busy or just probably thinking about how do I save the city from the British? He didn't notice her and he didn't tip his hat. And that mm -hmm. somewhat infuriated the young lady. Uh. And allegedly she held a grudge for four decades. <laughs> so when she had that statue designed, he's designed with his hat off clearly. So he'll forever be tipping his hat to the Baroness. That is funny. Amazing. It's probably not true. Yeah. But honestly, given her character, it could be true right it's one of those things we just we'll file it as true because yeah. we just want it. you want it to be true <laughs> right. It's awesome. right yeah i was actually i was about to ask about like her personality and it sounds like she was imperious awesome. and willful to absolutely say absolutely I, the truth is she was forced into a marriage with her cousin uh, he was she's a spanish extraction he's a french literally of france Mm -hmm. um but she was a bossy woman she was a headstrong woman and he was kind of a weak-willed guy so she just ran the roost she told mm -hmm. him what to do told him did, literally ran his life for him like my his house yeah <laughs> his father was a very strong-willed man and traditionally was used to running his son's life for him too so of course uh -huh. they clashed they butted heads they went to visit uh his father's estates in france and he his his father hated her so much that he came into the, the house he was letting me use with four pistols, shot her three times. And then when she lays on the floor bleeding, he pulled out a pistol and, you know, essentially atoned for the, the scandal by shooting himself. 
here's the joke she survived <laughs> amazing yeah when you, imperious and strong-willed exactly who she that, was that is a lot like my house <laughs> Shot my wife through. No, <laughs> I, however, on the on the flip side, I appreciate my wife running my life because I think I would starve and die of exposure without her. You know, you, you'd starve in, a, in a, a nest of filthy clothes. Otherwise, I I would, I would, yeah. <laughs> I was uh, not hugely competent. Okay, so earlier you you hit a uh, you hit a note that uh, Kara and I I can only imagine we're both interested in and that's murderous prostitutes yes please you know um Dude, i knew that we want get to know about the savage psychopaths <laughs> wait savage psychopath was a different category we oh okay well we'll, we'll hit and savage hit psychopath both. you know yeah subdivisions i feel like there's some overlap <laughs> i'm sure there's some overlap but let's Definitely. go to murderous yeah. prostitutes because i can imagine that as, especially when you tell us the origin and them dumping uh the people here, you know, I, I would kill people. How's a woman too. get by? You can't know? fault someone for a little murder under those circumstances. Well, you know, uh, obviously, a lot of the women who were imported here went back to the trade. Um, a lot of them did become wives, you know, because it's not the dream of every little girl to come across to. Obviously, of course. Of course. And historically, in New Orleans, we have, you know, you. I'm sure everybody is aware. New Orleans has a reputation historically of being the Babylon, the pit of sin and vice. Mm -hmm. always has um and as a result you know there was a never supply of prostitutes in new orleans for for centuries uh, the last open house of prostitution in new orleans was i want to think 1972 i mean technically it wasn't open but you know everybody knew about it and the cops got paid off mm -hmm. <laughs> that's how it works right right so um the prostitutes in new orleans though were were you know most of their stories are gone in time um there's a wonderful photographer named Ernest Belloc who lived in New Orleans in the late 19th century. And he took pictures of the prostitute of Storyville. Storyville was our red light district. And they, only about 10 or 12 of his photographs survived because his brother was a Catholic priest and destroyed almost all the photographs after his death. Figures. But a few of them survived and they are literally iconic photographs. Uh, so... You know, we can see these ladies in some cases. We can see pictures of some of the ladies. Um, we have lots of descriptions. Of course, we have, you know, records. You, you would have to buy a license to run a house of prostitution. So we know who and where and when and where they were located in the city. Um, so we have a lot of information in that respect. Um, we also have a lot of stories that come down, like a lot of good stories in the South, through word of mouth, um, through diaries, journals, letters, things like that from the past. But... Um, it was extremely, extremely difficult, extremely dangerous. Um, I, I think most of the prostitutes in New Orleans probably died before they were 50. Uh, well, and, you know, from disease and violence. Right, that's what I was Drug use, say. disease and violence. I mean, it, it, there's just not a way to understand how dangerous New Orleans would have been historically. But you got to realize it is the, one of the biggest transient points in North America, and there's a big 200-foot deep river right next to it. So That goes right out to the sea. Yeah, the, the violence would have been absolutely off the scale in some areas of the city. I mean, beyond our, our willingness to comprehend. If you ever saw the movie Gangs in New York, uh, it would be that level of squalor and violence. Oh, really? I did see that. Yeah, oh, yeah. I did absolutely. Um, the two-block area that's now called French Market Place, where we have you know a lot of tourists shop for souvenirs, 
that was called Gallatin Street, and it was considered from about 1840 to 1870 or so, the most dangerous part of North America. A two block walk where the cops wouldn't go in. They would only go to the outskirts in wagons and groups of five during the daytime. And they would generally pick up the bodies that were dropped off there by the residents. Oh. Yeah, I'm not joking. Crazy. It was crazy. wild. And it had lots and lots, you know, brothels, of course, um, a lot of dance, dance halls and taverns, em employed women. There were reports in the 1830s of dance halls along Gallatin Street where women were completely naked except for their shoes, dancing along. You know, I mean, it's, I mean, it just blows your mind. What, mm -hmm. the 19th century? Oh, yes, absolutely, in New Orleans. Uh, and a lot of these women had very, very short and miserable lives. Um, there's some notorious ones. Um, Bricktop Mary is probably the most infamous one. And her friend Bridget Fury. Um, they're considered, they were part of a group of prostitutes who by the late 1850s were so rowdy and violent, they were essentially kicked out of Gallatin Street. So they moved a few blocks over to Dauphine and got a house together. So you have a bunch of women, and they're actually considered by many people America's first all-female street gang. Wow because they were vicious. Um, Bricktop was Excellent. infamous for, Bricktop Mary killed four men that we know of with a knife by preference. She loved a knife so much, she had a knifesmith make her a custom knife. So it had a central grip of German silver and a five inch blade on each end of it. So she could cut, stab and slash in any direction without ever having to change the position of her hand. She designed that knife to be built for her to use on people. Some people call her a serial killer uh, along the lines of Eileen Warnos. I don't think she was. I think she was just extremely violent, had a very short temper, no small amount of PTSD, and was in an extremely deadly place. But she was so tough, she, she said, it was said she never lost a fight against a man or a woman, ever, ever, in years. Do we know how she uh, got the nickname? Bricktop? Yeah. yeah. As you might guess, Mary Jackson had flaming red hair. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> That makes sense. Um, yeah, yeah, I wasn't sure if it was like some sort of like murderous thing, but no, yeah. no, yeah, but yeah. she was plenty murderous. And she, you know, her roommate, her best friend Bridget Fury, was almost. She was a very strong, muscular woman, but there was another one named America Williams, in their gang, who was six feet tall, six feet tall, and just you know, just enormous and mm -hmm. viciously strong and terrifying. So these women uh, were were just absolutely off the, the, the charts. Um, one of the best stories about Bricktop and Bridget, they and a couple of probably other members of their gang were hanging out in a uh, beer hall on Rampart Street. Uh, and, you know, you're, you might guess they were salty in their language. So they're sitting there cursing away and just chattering amongst themselves. And apparently a gentleman at a table over asked them to mind their language and they just kind of blew him off. And then he told them, you know, he got up to tell them, you know, shut up. To which something like a brick top said some likes like what are you gonna do about it he got up and he walked over and he slapped her Oof. Oops. yeah <laughs> monsieur fleury did not have a very good long life after that because three these three women immediately descend on him with knives and just cut him to ribbons and a bartender came out and fired a shot from a pistol into the ceiling to try and drive him off mm -hmm. oh they ran out in the street picked up bricks and started throwing bricks at the bartender who had a pistol the bartender runs away. I mean, no, one guy tries to intervene in the murder of this man. He's got a vicious slash on his arm from brick top. He has to back off. They literally just butchered a man right there on Rampart Street. And everybody knew who they were. Um, that's what actually sent her to prison, finally. She got wow. she got uh, sentenced to, I think, 10 years for murder. Mm -hmm. and the thing is that she, they couldn't 
The coroner apparently wouldn't say what had killed the gentleman. He decided it was heart failure. Uh, so <laughs> well, that's a trend yeah, that goes I, on today. She, I she imagine his heart did rest. fail after he was cut yeah. in 40 different yeah. pieces. But I mean, I think that gives you an idea of how frightened people were of these women. Absolutely. You know, like, I'm not going to risk the ire of these women at all. It's just going to be heart failure. Right. But uh, after we got taken by the North in 1862, the, the governor, military governor of Louisiana, the Union governor, essentially freed everybody from the prisons in New Orleans. And Bricktop mm -hmm. took her opportunity and disappeared into history. So she's gone by about 1862, vanishes into history. Uh, it's pretty interesting. These women were characters beyond belief, but absolutely real. Yeah, that sounds like a movie waiting to happen. Right I know, now. it's insane, yeah. isn't it? Like yeah. Netflix, come on. Yeah, yeah. Stop totally. making Stop the game. Exactly. <laughs> Um, you know, it prompts the question, you know, um, my wife is all about uh, true crime, which a lot of wives are in this world. A lot of um, women, it seems to be a, a stereotype that's going around um, of true crime uh, armchair detectives, of which my wife is one. Um, I wonder what it is that we we love so much about these murderous women because one of the shows is several of the shows are really just about women specifically and um you know half of me sort of thinks that it's this this sort of love of the underdog and then the other half of it uh feels like it's the continued curse of eve you know um i don't i don't really know where i'm going with this but you know what do you think? Why do you think we love these murderous women so much? I think it's because, you know, I think small, no small degree, it's the underdog. It's the outlaw ethos, you know, mm. the, the thing that all Americans in, in theory admire and pride themselves on individuality and rebelliousness. And, you know, everybody has a fantasy that I could have done it. I could have lived in the old West. I could have done that. You know, right. real, it's almost everybody's going to die from like Starbucks within the first couple of days. But, um, <laughs> but these women, you know, I think, I think it's because every hand was against them. Literally every hand was against them. Every card was against them. Everything in their life was against them succeeding, but they fought literally clawed their way up literally uh, and impacted other people's lives for good or ill in a way that would be absolutely shocking to most of the Victorian sensibilities the United States has suffered under uh, in the past you know, couple hundred years. So I think that has a lot to do with it, that they are the ultimate rebel, successful rebel in many cases, cases like Marie Laveau, for example, uh, or the Venice Montalvo. Admittedly, you know, being born a child of wealthy nobility is a big advantage, but uh, she, you know, she did amazing things in a time where women were essentially told everywhere else just to sit down and shut up and look pretty. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I think I think that has a lot to do with it. The, the, the good underdog story that Americans love more than anything else. And, I, and Americans I, also love murder. So yeah. Know, well, oh yeah. Peanut <laughs> butter and, and sex chocolate. and death. <laughs> exactly. Really interested in sex and death. Well, that's what I always say about movies is that uh, I love sex and violence as much as any guy. I just like a movie with a plot to uh, make me feel good about right. it. You right. know, I don't want to watch a movie of just sex and violence. I need a plot there to make me feel somewhat civilized. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, if it's not R-rated, I'm all, eh, I don't know if I want to watch this. You know? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think our city uh, combines all, things, all three of those things very well. Um, and, you know, it's the kind of thing we're trying to put out on the tours. Uh, you know, everything from, from my, my friend who helped me design the tour calls the cult of domesticity, which would have been um, where women 
of certain class were not allowed to be merchants, not allowed to be shopkeepers, not allowed to be in right. business and trade. But a good example of that is during the Civil War, when all the, all the men are off to fight, the women are not allowed to work. They have to maintain a cult of domesticity. So they kind of formed co-ops together where they would, you know, they do everything from sewing, you know, uh, quilts and things like that to uh, uh, baked goods, whatever they were doing. And then they would kind of sell them through, if you will, a neutral front shop, like a consignment store, if you will, mm. which gave them the money to keep their families going while their, their husbands and their sons and their um, fathers are off to war. And they were able to keep providing for their families while maintaining the societally demanded idea of the, the genteel matron, the genteel lady. So everything from that to, you know, entrepreneurs like Rick Top Mary and, and uh, Bridget Fury to, uh, you know, it's just really amazing when you look at it, the wide variety of human stories. And most of them, Norman's, a lot of the best ones have women involved in them. I think that's one of the coolest things. You know, the, uh, I, I think one thing a lot of people are interested in when it comes to this is the, is the voodoo. And of course, we know Marie Laveau, you know, are there, are there other famous priestesses coming down? I think, I think if there are outside of New Orleans, they sort of get, lost in the gravity of Marie Laveau, but uh, mm. I assume throughout the years there's been a, a, a vein of, is, is there a top priestess and does that carry on today? It's, it's kind of a misnomer, top priestess. I would say that Marie Laveau was top priestess simply because of her influence mm. right. more than anything else. Um, you know, the Voodoo tradition is still very strong here. You know, the guy who does my voodoo tour, Roby, is from a long line of voodoo practitioners. You know, he's a, the only person in the city who, who's a, actually a voodoo priest of both Louisiana and the Haitian style of the religion. And he, you know, he does a tour. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, and his line comes from his mother. It comes down from that, that long family line of, of priestesses and priests in the voodoo tradition. That, and I think a lot of times people wouldn't know about them because, you know, it was considered, nobody wants to have a religion mocked. Nobody wants that religion belittled and made fun of. Uh, and sure. of course, Americans have done that to voodoo because, you know, it's a little bit, it's obviously a racist thing right. uh, and misunderstood thing. But, you know, big surprise, the voodoo practitioners generally are very circumspect, or at least traditionally have been for a hundred years or more, simply because they didn't want to have stigma placed on them. And also it was their personal religion, nothing to be brooded about. Um, it, it would be considered poor form in many of the, the voodoo communities to use your position to profit off other people. Right. That would be considered very much a negative thing to do. And it's not like people haven't done it without a doubt, human nature is human nature, but generally it'd be considered um, insulting the spirits, if you will, mm. um, by you're giving these gifts by the spirits to help other people not to glorify and enrich yourself. That would be the theory behind it, the idea behind it. So, um, you know, there's some names we have, a few names floating around historically. Marie Laveau was allegedly taught by her mother and a, another legendary priestess who came before named Sanite Dede, who apparently was a powerful healer, uh, allegedly taught Marie Laveau a lot of her herb lore and things like that. So mm -hmm. it would have definitely gone through a matrilineal lineage through family. Yeah. Uh, but. There's not a whole lot of names that we would know about historically anymore, simply because they weren't able to read, they weren't able to write, nobody wrote their stories down, 
Um, and today, voodoo is very much more up in the, in the open. Very much more. Uh, the actual, if you will, the Pope of voodoo, of all voodoo in the world, was in New Orleans about four years ago, five years ago, uh, just came to visit. Uh, doesn't speak any English, of course. He's from Africa. He speaks uh, African dialect of French. But a representative of the mayor came and offered him key to the city and, you know, celebrated him. Huh. And uh, it was neat. I was there at the, the, at the ceremony. It was very, very cool. Huh. Having all, all these different uh, people of pretty well-known voodoo families in New Orleans drumming and singing and dancing for him. And it was just a very cool little, you know, positive, happy little ceremony. So that's the kind of stuff that, that goes on here, I think, is really fun. So yeah, they got a man pope, and I got to say that you know a a lot of my thoughts of voodoo over the years has been women. Uh, do women hold more of a place of reverence in voodoo than than men, or is that just our interest in the underdog? No, traditionally it's it's the case in, in the voodoo tradition. The, the mumbo, the female priest, is more powerful than the male priest. Hmm. It's traditionally that's just how it goes, uh, and it's it's goes that way all the way back to Africa. And what Not about that there aren't famous voodoo priests, but usually the priestess is considered the most powerful or one of the closest connection. And what about white women? You know, is that, um, I, I assume that's something that goes on today, but historically, was that something that didn't go on, wasn't allowed to go on, or just didn't go on because of separation? In what way? Like well, white women practicing voodoo, do you mean? Yeah, yeah. You know, was was this strictly a, a a black or a mixed religion, or you know, when did uh, whiteness get? Um, I don't know how to ask the word. When did it become connected enough to the point where where white people were a part of it, or was that always the case? Well, in North America, it's going to be a different beast. Uh, New Orleans, as everything else, is just different. Um, voodoo was able to survive and thrive because it was able to hide itself from Catholicism without a problem at all. But, you know, we know in the 19th century there were big scandals because you know, police raids would go out and break up these voodoo ceremonies in the Bayou St. John and, and there'd be, you know, white women there at the, at the voodoo rituals. And I think that was, that was, you know, feminine rebellion. Feminine rebellion, you know, joining this mystic religion, um, consorting with Africans at a time that was considered not to be done. Um, recently, I mean, it's only been relatively recently that, that people of European extraction, I think, have been uh, welcomed into voodoo, or not, I wouldn't even say welcomed, but tolerated in voodoo. Right. Uh, I know some voodoo people who have very strong beliefs on, on the religion, like it's not a religion for white people kind of beliefs. But um, I do know several, you know, fervent practitioners, priests, mambos, uh, who are uh, definitely you know European, hmm. and in New Orleans they're certainly tolerated and accepted. So uh, I, I would say you know it's going to be an early nineteenth century thing, mid nineteenth century thing when when you know there will be white devotees and and largely they're going to be women, and it's going to be I think to, as much as anything else a societal rebellion that they can kind of secretly partake in. Well, I can imagine that historically when they went out there and broke these things up and found white women. That, that brought a level of ire and interest that oh, yeah. probably not wanted at the time all of a sudden it's a threat to our white women mm -hmm. and uh, you know it, it becomes a much larger threat to the area where before it was sort of laughed off maybe i wouldn't say laughed off but it was seen as a curiosity mm -hmm. um 
you know, Sundays were the days off of slaves and, and they would gather in uh, what we now call Armstrong Park, but it's called Congo Square. And they would trade and dance and sing and drum. Um, but the white locals would oftentimes just show up and just kind of, you know, to watch, to listen to the drumming and the singing and see the dancing and, you know, kind of try and see what's going on. It was, you know, a secret closely held amongst the slaves because it, Sunday was their day off by law. So it's the only time a slave didn't have to share their things was on Sunday. Right. It, it was said that when the priestesses would, would do their rituals in the, in the square, um, they would have a bunch of very tall slaves just simply making a human fence between the quarter side of the square and their side of the square to keep them from being able to see for sure what was going on. And you also got to keep in mind, you know, the Catholic Church for a very long time would have come down extremely hard on voodoo, as in, you know, execution. This right. is heresy. Whippings and execution, punishment, brutal punishments. So it was very much kind of a defense mechanism for them, but also they could practice their own religion and have something that's just theirs that no white person could have or touch. So these all combined, I think, uh, to, to really make voodoo thrive in New Orleans, mm. whereas the other parts of the world, it would have been stomped out. The other parts of North America would have been stomped out with extreme prejudice. Right. It makes sense. Yeah, is there still a big racial divide in, in New Orleans today? Well, yeah, I mean, it's still part of the United States. Well, um, yes, I get that, but... It, it's sad, because traditionally it's more of a class divide in New Orleans, really, uh, for mm -hmm. a very long time, because black and white people all lived in the same neighborhood if they were in the same class. So downtown, my neighborhood, uh, the Marigny, was essentially very mixed. Irish, German immigrants, um, black people descendants of some of the old French and Spanish families, mm -hmm. Sicilians, they would all live up and down the same streets together, play in the streets together. It was because they're all working class people. So it, we have a little bit of advantage of that because it was much traditionally much more class-based. Um, big surprise, I think America, the American end of the city was not. I think it was very much more race-based. Right. But where, the, the Europeans kept more of a, a mix of people moving amongst themselves, you know, uh, drinking together celebrating together. Mm -hmm. So I think that had a lot to do with it. Um, and of course, you know, in the South, matriarchy is still a very, very, very powerful thing. You know, no matter how loud and proud they are, every Southern man is afraid of one old woman. Right. And that's the, <laughs> that's the old woman that runs the family. Right. That so you know, it still is very much a big, big deal here. The matriarchy aspect has a lot to do with everything. You know, the, the joke is you know, when you ask a local who's got the best gumbo in the city, he's going to say, my mom. <laughs> right <laughs> or else you know what i'm saying right so yeah it's, what still, about, it's still a very strong thing in the city yeah what what about women and um and hauntings what uh i assume that there's quite a few of those given the tragic pasts of, of women in general throughout history but uh yeah yeah i mean specifically you could talk about uh you know there's a, a julie is a very famous story it goes back well over 150 years 200 years maybe, almost, uh, about a young classé, free woman of color, who, to prove her devotion to her paramour, froze to death on the rooftop uh, in December of one year, about 1834. Uh, she literally put herself naked in a sleet storm to prove that she loved him enough to marry him, mm. or for him to marry her. And as a result, she died of hypothermia on the rooftop. And, you know, that's a very old legend that goes back, and it 
it's kind of a cool story because it describes you can understand a little bit more about Plassage, the relationship, you know, how it was done. Um, the building that was their building is still there. And it's been reported, you know, ghost activity in the building forever. Friends of mine actually live in a condo at the very top floor of that room, of that building. And they have ghost activity in the place all the time. So, you know, that's a very old ghost story in New Orleans. Um, one of my favorite people that people don't know about was a woman who came here, who came to New Orleans at the age of 16 with a child in her, in her arms in 1726. And within three years of her arrival, her husband was uh, part of a group of about 300 men, women, and children who were um, essentially ambushed by a couple of Indian tribes, outnumbered about almost three to one. Uh, and almost none of them would have been, un would have been armed. Uh, and they were killed almost all to the last person. But one of the tribes in involved were also cannibals. So we're talking torture, enslavement, and cannibalism in the 1720s, 17, yeah, 1729. Yeah. Uh, and she, big surprise, while she had a very successful life, she made a successful life for her. She's one of my absolute favorite people. She still haunts her home. She still haunts that home that she died in. And the thing that's so cool is I've seen photographs of her. And when she's photographed, she not a 68-year-old woman. She would look like she was when she was 19. Oh. When her husband went away and never ever came home again. Well, I'm looking so, forward to dying then, if that's what I get to look like. Well, I'm just saying, don't start trapped on time or place. Yeah. Uh, and of course, Delphine Lauri, the, the, the most infamous woman of New Orleans, the one who's was uh, immortalized by Kathy Bates in a season three of American Horror Story Coven. Uh, I've seen that. She certainly was a torturer. She was a murderer of slaves, no doubt at all. And uh, you know, the home she did her activities, big surprise, is still very haunted, not only by the ghosts of slaves, but also by the ghosts of other people who lived there, including, I've been told, uh, Delphine Lallery herself. Uh, I've got some friends who worked there very briefly as in one guy went in and quit at the end of his first day and refused to go back inside the building. So there are actually rather a lot of stories about ghost activity and ones that involve women without a doubt at all. So this, this woman from American Horror Story, she was a real character. Um, <clears throat> did she really do this stuff to slaves? There's some debate about that. Some people say that she was a victim of yellow journalism um, right. personal jealousy. I mean, all that stuff could certainly have something to do with it, but we do have That's records. We do have records. And she, she was very much, very much a, uh, a person of interest. She was wanted. Mm -hmm. She was convicted of wrongful death, of murder of a slave um, before this, this, all this stuff comes out. Um, she, there's a lot of books about her. Some of them paint her in a better light. Some of them paint her in a darker light. Um, I personally think that she was probably what we call a psychosexual sadist in that she in derived physical pleasure from hurting other people. Mm. Right. Uh, and slaves were the perfect opportunity. Her husband was a surgeon. So, and a lot of the, a lot of the reports of people found after they were discovered and fled the city imply a lot of uh, surgical techniques, experimentation, vivisection, that kind of thing. So they would be the match made in hell. They'd be perfect for each other. One, one thing that was reported when she was the, the preeminent host of the city is she would welcome people into her beautiful home in a gorgeous gowns of you know, watered silk from Paris. Then she would excuse herself from a party, be gone an hour or more, which would be wildly rude. 
And then we come down the staircase in a completely different gown. And people assume that she was just being kind of a bitch and showing, you know, rubbing everybody's nose and how much she had that they would never have. Right. But I have a horrible suspicion that she would be so aroused at her dark little secret. She would go upstairs, she would hurt people, and she would have to change. Oh. I like that. Because she That's would get people on her. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, it's it, absolute she's, power move to just come back down covered in blood, though. Covered in chunks well, of people. Yeah, but you can only do that once. Yeah, you can only do it once. It's true. That's the problem. <laughs> But, you know, she, she's one of the most infamous people of our city, without a doubt. She's the stop that every single ghost tour, except for mine, thank you very much, talks about. Because I don't talk about it. I had somebody ask about it the other day, and it's like it's it's like a Saw movie, except for it really happened. Right. Saw movies are fun for some people because it's uh, a dark fantasy. But when it really happens, that is not as much fun to talk about. Right. See my point? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I can yeah. talk about it. I've got tons of stories I can talk about that nobody else knows except for me mm -hmm. that I can share with people. So it's much more fun, I think, to, to be able to tell people stories that, you know, that woman I mentioned who was uh, widowed at 19 because her husband was killed and eaten by cannibals. Um, that's a remarkably cool story because, it's a, you know, a story of triumph over absolute and utter pit despair mm -hmm. and you know, ruination. Mm -hmm. uh, I like telling people stories that will make them think or make them perhaps sympathize with a person who's been dead for 200 or more years. I like to keep people in a position where they can think, well, what if that was me? Or I could be in that situation. I think it really sticks with people more and they, they can really feel the story more than me just, you know, shouting a bunch of nonsense about, you know, torture and execution in a house that actually had a lot of torture and execution. It's right. making light of something that is horrific. And I, I cannot stand that. I really can't. Well, I understand but, that. I'm a big horror movie fan and uh, I, I, I personally don't like the Saw movies. I, I like uh, more Supernatural, but um, they can get as crazy as they want to be. And I like them because they're fiction. But um, sometimes when I'm watching some of the true crime stuff, I'm, you know, I'm a little a little turned off by it because of the reality of it. You Absolutely. Know, um, I, I don't mind when it's fantasy, but when it gets a little too gory and rapey and kitty and and stuff you know uh and it's reality i'm just all like good god why am i even watching this is there something wrong with me well yeah i mean that's entirely reasonable man i i i'm right there with you the whole time show me a conjuring movie any day but right yeah yeah small stuff is not my bag man it's no. <laughs> i guess maybe because i live in a place that is so freaking real that i know stuff like that has really happened <laughs> and that's just too dark you know even for me, it's too dark. Right. But, uh, you know, it's so cool in the city that we have such a luxury of women to talk about. Uh, I, if I do the Women in Orleans store, whenever I do the Women in Orleans store, I absolutely am going to talk about Delphine Lallery. I'm going to have to because she's one of the most infamous women of the city of New Orleans and absolutely shaped our culture from 1834 on because she's been one of the most persistent boogeymen, if you will, boogeywomen uh, and ghost stories of the city of New Orleans since, you know, 1830s. So, and that's the one everybody knows about because of American Horror Story and stuff like that. You got so to play I, the I hits. To talk to her, but I, I would, I'm hoping to be able to talk to her about her in a more a historical context. Maybe hopefully trying to figure out why she was this way. I hope, I hope. And give people a little more idea of what this, this person was. Mm -hmm. um, she would have had every single advantage possible to a woman for that time period. I think she and her husband were arguably, if not the richest people in a third of North America, right up there in the top five. 
incalculable wealth and power for the time. I suspect her family knew about her proclivities. It's hard to hide when you're in the house. Well, I mean her extended family. I see. Um, I suspect she might have also been extremely frightening and abusive to her daughters because her daughters, who should have been awful little monsters being spoiled and rich, were uh, apparently notoriously shy and retiring and quiet. Mm. So I think she was literally an ogress just running a household with absolutely no restraint. And uh, she was just, a, she was like a, you know, a wicked witch from Hansel and Gretel almost, you know? Right. A woman with very, very few redeeming qualities. But you know what, what I find so interesting about that is you got to realize that Marie Laveau and Delphine Laurie would have absolutely known each, who each other were. They would have gone to the same cathedral for mass together. It's not unlikely that Marie Laveau did Delphine Laurie's hair on more than one occasion because she's a hairdresser to the high society ladies. Right. So, I mean, it's just crazy to think about these, these women. One who essentially is a, a powerful, if you will, almost voodoo saint. And another one who is absolutely and utterly dark. Not only knowing each other, but crossing paths repeatedly. And going to the same cathedral for mass together. So I, I guess I didn't make the connection that they would be alive at the same time. Was this, absolutely. Was this, um, was this a golden age of history in... New Orleans for both of them to be alive at the same time? Is this an era that we draw a lot of history from or is that purely coincidental? No, I and mean, you're right. It's an area we, era we draw a lot of history from. Um, the increased Americanization of New Orleans after 1803 and also the explosion of traffic on the Mississippi River would have made us an absolute focal point for anybody traveling from Europe to North America is almost without exception going to go to New Orleans. Um, reporters, you know, all kinds of, we had multiple newspapers in several different languages. So um, there's increased literacy at the time period. So people are able to keep their own journals and diaries and write letters more often. So that's really the golden era for history because we get so much good history from that time period. At the same time, it's so far removed, it's a little bit hazy, if you will, mm. in our mind's eye. So right. it's, it's a lot of fun to kind of try and put these people together at the same time, I suspect that Marie Laveau, Delphine Lalaurie, the Pirate King Jean Lafitte, and Andrew Jackson were all at the same church together at the same time. Hmm. There were four very notorious characters in the city's history. Right. It's very likely they would all sit at the same cathedral at the same time together. Man, that's a movie right there, too. Yep. New Orleans <laughs> is nothing but the most amazing series of movies and, and TV shows yeah. that nobody ever makes. Yeah. Uh, well, you you're you're the holder of the knowledge. Why aren't you making these movies? Hollywood, if you need somebody to consult, I've done it before. <laughs> yeah, all the Netflix execs who listen to our show, please. And there's tons of them, I'm sure. <laughs> Find Jonathan Weiss. Yeah, yeah. Right. He's available to consult. Biggest damn show on the internet. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's uh, it, it really is neat because I, I always thought something like a little more daring company like HBO. Yeah, exactly. It just seems like such a natural to, to set a historical drama in New Orleans. Yeah, it does. It does. Because you would have the glittering high society of, you know, pre-antebellum, antebellum, pre-Civil War, glittering high society and absolute squalor who would literally live a block and a half apart from each other. 
right and and uh racism abound uh undergrounds where where women and black characters can thrive uh yeah just great opportunity there great and also the mixing the mixing of races the, like i said the class mixing of races yeah uh, we had extremely violent street gangs in the city i mean savage irish street gangs like would come out of the five points right you got bridget fury and bricktop mary and there's their little cabal extremely violent prostitutes who the first female street gang right that's the one i want to see the most that's the movie yeah. we've got i think it'd be fascinating wouldn't it it really <laughs> would be cool it'd be like deadwood just said about 40 years earlier right really uh, like, one hell of a show wouldn't it just like fargo but set in new orleans uh, just <laughs> yeah a, a comedy of errors kind of thing <laughs> yeah into, yeah you know unbelievable it, 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 it's one of the coolest things about the city is the things i think i mentioned to you before but the things that actually happened, if you read it in a movie, or if you read it in a book or saw it in a movie, you wouldn't believe it. But it, it really happened. We know what happened. Yeah. It's just absolutely impossible to, to wrap your head around the, the sheer improbability of the city. And yet, the fact that it's not only thrived, but has been tried to be, if we feel like the gods try to wipe us off the map for 300 years, and yet we just won't go. Right. And I, I would suggest, I always that, you know, kind of tongue in cheek, it's like, because nobody else would let us in. That's what it is. Right. We built our own little, little <laughs> strange insular community that's got our own very specific rules and culture, and, and uh, it's 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 just its own little place. I so. would like to see Mardi Gras spread across the country, though. I, that is a holiday I'd like to see the rest of the country celebrate. And the sad thing is, it won't work because the rest of the country is Protestant. They're what? Uh, I guess so. Protestants. Oh, Mardi Gras is yeah. a Catholic holiday. Yeah, it's it's a. Uh, you know, it, it literally is based on old Catholic principles, you know, old Catholic beginning of the, the Lenten season with Ash Wednesday, the day after Mardi Gras. We do Halloween. So, I mean, nobody yeah, cares about that. Yeah, I don't think that. Americans have a huge problem with taking holidays without, you and know, butchering any, any understanding what? of their <laughs> historical or religious me? context. <laughs> yeah, what... what uh, Patrick's Day, what? Yeah, what Mardi <laughs> yeah. Gras needs is like its own Santa Claus figure from Macy's in order to sell presents. Oh my God. Some sort of don't, like don't giant cake with a baby ideas. in it or something. You know? Chelsea, I want you to keep your dirty American hands off. Of <laughs> <laughs> if yeah. you want to have a Mardi Gras, you have it in your house or you come and visit us. But that's the only way you do it. We don't allow any other Mardi Gras. We'll, we'll talk about this in the neutral zone. Was that the right word? The neutral ground. Yeah, neutral ground. Right. <laughs> exactly right, man. <laughs> All right. Yeah, uh, well, we're at the end here. Uh, I okay. really appreciate uh, you coming on. Man, you always got the greatest stories, uh, and there's just so much going on there. Um, yeah. And I really appreciate you coming on, especially a second time. Um, you've been listening to Jonathan Vice here. We've been talking about uh, Women of NOLA, that's New Orleans, Louisiana. And uh, if you're interested in finding out more about him and his tours, your best place is to go to jonathanvicetours.com. Vice is spelt with the W, like the German. And uh, check it out. Uh, for one, it's a great looking website. If nothing else, you got some great photography going on there. Thank you. SEO brain popping in. Yeah, I respect that, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. And we're always happy to have you.